Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. So, coming up in episode 106 of the GDPR Weekly Show, we begin with a response from the ICO to the letter of criticism from a cross-party group of MPs, which we mentioned in last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. We then have news that Sam Smith's brewery has been criticised for not implementing track and trace and claiming that GDPR is the reason it's not implemented it. And we then have an article where scientists are arguing that GDPR is hampering COVID-19 search for a vaccine. We then move away from COVID-19 and we look first at an update on a story which we've been bringing you for the last few weeks about a data breach at Blackboard and that Blackboard are now facing class action after that data breach. We then move to Watford, where residents are beginning legal action after a data breach by Watford Community Housing. We then have news of a major data breach of 235 million users of Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. We then have a timely reminder that Brexit lurks around the corner and what that means for data under GDPR if we, as the UK, leave the EU without an agreement on the 31st of December. We then take a look at five GDPR-related WordPress plugins, which you might find useful. And we then have news from Germany, where a court has awarded €5,000 to an ex-employee after its employer, or ex-employer, did not respond fully and in time to subject access requests made by the ex-employee. Staying in Germany, we look at a study that's been carried out there into the GDPR compliance of mobile apps. And finally, we go to South Africa with news that the South African Internet of Things provider, IoT.NXT, has achieved ISO and GDPR compliance. So, as normal, a good range of articles there for you. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback for us, please email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Unfortunately, due to the volume of feedback which we receive, we can't necessarily answer each piece of feedback individually, but we do bear all your comments in mind when we're putting together future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show and look to incorporate as many of your suggestions as we possibly can. Your coronavirus roundup from the GDPR Weekly Show. We begin this week with a follow-up to an article which we brought you last week in which we reported about a letter which had been sent from a cross-party group of MPs in the UK to the UK Information Commissioner's Office. To recap, the crux of the letter was that the MPs were saying that they considered that there had been numerous data protection issues during the COVID-19 pandemic, such as those around the legal failings of the Test and Trace scheme and wider issues with the contact tracing app, and they suggested that the ICO should have been more fleet of foot and should have taken stronger action against any government missteps. Well, this week the ICO have had a chance to respond, and the ICO has said that it plans to respond to the MPs in due course, but in the interim, a spokesperson for the ICO said our regulatory obligations include advising as well as supervising the work of data controllers. Our approach during the pandemic has been to provide advice on the data protection implications of a number of initiatives by the UK government, the NHS, local councils and private sector organisations to respond to the public health crisis. The ICO says that it recognises the government and other organisations had to quickly respond to the pandemic. 
The spokesperson said, we have explained their data protection obligations and provided guidance and expertise at pace to them. We have published much of this work so there is transparency and we'll audit and investigate arrangements where necessary to ensure people's information rights are upheld. The spokesman went on to say, we will continue to uphold people's information rights and we will act where our advice is not followed and where we find serious systemic or negligent behaviour that puts people's protections at risk. The letter, which had been coordinated by privacy organisation the Open Rights Group, comes at a challenging time for the ICO. During the pandemic, the ICO paused its work on some new and ongoing data protection cases. An investigation into the advertising technology used by Facebook and Google, which follows people around the web and collects information about them, was paused, in part, so as to not put undue pressure on any industry. Critics of the ICO claim it should use its enforcement powers or risk organisations becoming complacent about data protection. The government will just break the law and take risks unless it feels there are consequences, says Jim Killock, Executive Director of Open Rights Group. If the data protection authority is being slack and not bringing problems to the public's attention, then the government feels no cost and simply won't improve its behaviour. At a meeting of the Human Rights Committee within the House of Parliament in May, Elizabeth Denham, the Information Commissioner, said, I have told the government that they need to be transparent to the public and she added that the ICO would be a critical friend. During the pandemic, the ICO has been publishing information that can help businesses with data protection issues. For instance, it has provided advice for business on how to properly collect people's data for contact tracing, published information about accessing sensitive healthcare data, and advice about ensuring data security when people have been working from home. Doubtless when the House of Commons returns to work this week, then there will be further questions to come from House of Commons committees to the Information Commissioner. And as always, whenever we become aware of those questions and responses from the ICO, we will bring them to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. The Yorkshire brewery Sam Smith came under fire from various sources this week for not taking part in the government's track and trace programme for people who were using its pubs. Track and trace has been brought in across the UK for pubs and restaurants and the idea is that they record the name and contact details of each party who come into the pub or restaurant so that if there is a case of COVID-19 from one of the people who've been to that pub, then it's possible to give that list to the NHS so that their track and trace service can make contact with those other people who've been in the pub or restaurant that same day or same evening and contact them and advise them that they may have been exposed to COVID-19. However, it has to be said that it is a recommendation to pubs and restaurants that they do this and not a legal requirement which is the loophole that Sam Smith abused to say, well, we just didn't need to do it. Did a bit of background. Uh, Sam Smith is based in Tadcaster in Yorkshire and runs around 200 premises across the country. Interestingly, when they were contacted by the national press, Sam Smith said that they were not taking contact details from customers because they believed it breached GDPR rules. Well, that is total misinformation and really quite surprising from a company the size of Sam Smith. It's not breaching GDPR rules. GDPR governs what you can do with that information and how you need to keep it secure. But GDPR very much allows pubs and restaurants to capture that information in the first place. Otherwise, no one would be able to do it, and it would make a mockery of the whole thing. 
So government guidance says that pubs, cafes and restaurants should keep a record of customer phone numbers or email addresses so that they can be told if they come into close contact with anyone who's tested positive for COVID-19. The issue was raised at a health scrutiny meeting in Wakefield in West Yorkshire on Thursday afternoon. Councillor Martin Johnson said he'd become aware of the issue at the Wheel Inn on Bradford Road in the village of Renthorpe, which is a Sam Smith's pub. He told the meeting... We have three pubs and a club in Renthorpe. One is a Sam Smith's pub and the owner has told his landlords and pub managers that they're not to take any details or contact details for test and trace. That concerns me because no one can enforce it and it concerns me because of the spread of the virus. And of course, West Yorkshire is, is one of those areas which parts of it have been locked down in local lockdowns as part of the COVID-19 process. Stephen Turnbull from Wakefield's public health team said the council would consider lobbying government to make test and trace a legal requirement. He added, it isn't enforceable. What we're trying to do is encourage establishments to use test and trace and to keep a record of names. It can be really helpful if we do have an outbreak linked to a bar or sub because it can spread very quickly. In response to press articles about this, a company spokeswoman from Sam Smith said, the reason behind not having track and trace is it's against GDPR data protection to ask people's names and addresses and most people would give false names and addresses. I think our view on that is that it's very misguided. She then went on to say, Sam Smith's customers are locals and most managers know the customers word would get around if COVID was in a pub. Well, that's very true, but that doesn't help the NHS track and trace system. She then went on to say, people who write down names and addresses with a pen on paper did also spread the virus. And there's also confidentiality. There was a man who followed a pretty woman into a pub and saw her write down her name and phone number and then copied it and bothered her. Well, yes, that may well be true, but that's down to the way it's implemented within the individual pub. That is not a reason for not doing it. Um, I'm sorry, but I just do not accept Sam Smith's arguments for why they're not taking part in the scheme. It's especially relevant in Wakefield because Mr Turnbull said that tests and trace had been used effectively following an outbreak at Truce Bar in Wakefield City Centre earlier this month. Eight members of staff at the premises tested positive for coronavirus. Mr Turnbull said the bar was effectively blameless for the outbreak and that it had been running safely. He revealed that one customer who was tracked down had tested positive, but it was believed they may have contacted the virus from elsewhere. If we have any update on this from Sam Smith, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. In the meantime, I think I'd send a message via our podcast to the Managing Director of Sam Smith. Please get in touch with us. We'd be delighted to arrange some training for you so that you properly understand how GDPR and Track and Trace can work perfectly happily together. What's up, Isabella? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I will try it now. GDPR itself came in for some criticism this week from some scientists who are carrying out research into COVID-19. They pointed out that while countries like the United States, Canada and China are all using artificial intelligence to reveal groundbreaking insights into COVID-19, Europe has little to show, largely by restrictions put in place by their alleged GDPR. These restrictions, they say, have had real consequences and are undoubtedly part of the reason Europe is home to seven of the top ten countries measured by fatalities per 100,000 citizens, all of which are high United states. The European devotion to data privacy is noble, but it ought to be analysed in light of its repercussions. COVID-19 provides a starting point for such an analysis. 
President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said that technology is always neutral. It depends on what we make with it. And therefore, we want the application of these new technologies to deserve the trust of our citizens. This is why we are promoting a, re- a responsible human-centric approach to artificial intelligence. The stance that equates the minute of data governance with human centricity has been doubled down on in a comprehensive white paper on artificial intelligence released in March of 2020. But now, with the impact of COVID-19 and the research being done into COVID-19, there's an argument for possibly re-examining such a bold policy. The scientists argue that today the noble goals of GDPR are undermining the vaccine development and treatments for COVID-19. Vaccines and therapeutic treatments needed to help stymie the virus's negative impacts require mass amounts of health data, data that under current and potential EU legislation is nearly impossible to get hold of in a timely manner if it is able to be acquired at all. Indeed, a person with direct knowledge of the European Commission's thinking said the EU is not backtracking yet on its position but is thinking more actively about the unintended consequences of what they proposed in the white paper on artificial intelligence. Such unintended consequences are demonstrated by the lack of AI and machine learning being used to combat the virus since the type of data required would likely be considered special categories of personal data under GDPR, subjecting it to strict compliance requirements. Sadly, European officials actually insist on waiting until the end of the pandemic to assess how technological measures like artificial intelligence could be used to fight the pandemic. Contrast this with the United States, where Cotiviti, an American healthcare analytics company based out of Atlanta, can use artificial intelligence to pinpoint and predict COVID hotspots with up to 80% accuracy thanks to access to medical and health analytics data and the regulatory structure that permits its very existence. The scientists argue that GDPR has made European companies risk-averse. For COVID-19, this means that firms have opted not to share sensitive data that could have been used to gain insights from and fight the virus rather than face potential litigation. Second, it declared that pseudomized data is personal data, thereby subjecting data to difficult-to-satisfy consent requirements if privacy is indeed the purpose of GDPR, then instead of subjecting all data to onerous and unnecessary standards, it should consider alternate privacy-ensuring means. The scientists argue that there are ways to accomplish this. The EU could set requirements for differential privacy, a system that preserves individual privacy while still allowing broader group trends to be understood, thereby informing scientific efforts. However, the GDPR took the more problematic route. Indeed, GDPR will probably cause the most harm to already marginalised groups that can be more difficult to reach to garner their informed consent, thus leaving them underrepresented in GDPR-sanctioned datasets. It is datasets like these that can contribute to algorithmic bias. An example of this, of course, is what we've seen in the UK in the last few weeks with A-level results and the way that their grades were recalculated using an algorithm, which, because of bias, then had to be abandoned and going back to teachers' recommendations instead. The scientists argue that because of this, algorithms can create self-fulfilling prophecies. Ingrained bias, both positive and negative, which should be guarded against, can result in misleading results. While GDPR seeks to mitigate such algorithmic biases, which are indeed harming society, the focus on strictly regulating data is misplaced because it does not get to the root of the issue. The scientists argue that what Europe needs is more data, since the more data that algorithms have, supposedly the less biased they can be, but GDPR makes data aggregation difficult and costly. Even if one contends that more data is not necessarily better, putting such stringent requirements on Data imposes a rather great cost to business and entrepreneurs, and it is unclear if a cross-benefit analysis rules in favour of privacy, 
with hamstrung European responses to COVID-19 being exemplary of a balance overweighted towards privacy. However, the European Data Protection Board, EDPB, would argue that GDPR is actually a great tool for ruling out algorithmic bias. Its argument is that part of GDPR entitles the use of data audits. And it's saying that data audits are when humans scan data and algorithms to analyse if they are biased. Data audits, or human oversight, are an effective way, albeit not a panacea, to diminish algorithmic bias. It's argued that the EU, by creating such an expansive data policy, is trying to connect the dots between innovation policy and data regulation. In one respect, European thinking with regard to GDPR is sound. Legal and regulatory clarity are necessary conditions for optimal economic development. But where Europe goes awry is its belief that it is also a sufficient condition for such development. The scientists argue that creating such a dense legal mass, however, often only entrenches the incumbent rather than creates fertile ground for new competition. Their argument is that it's much easier for a multinational firm like Microsoft or Apple to deal with GDPR than it is for a small technology startup. Indeed, the lack of data is considered one of the reasons that Europe never matched the American tech boom of the early 21st century. If Europe wants to create more companies and try and create its own tech giant, GDPR, the scientists argue, may be exactly the wrong way to proceed. So an interesting viewpoint put forward by a group of scientists. From our perspective here at the GDPR Weekly Show, we're not sure we 100% agree with them, but we can see their argument for the need for there to be some way of making data available for medical studies while not compromising user data security. I'm sure this is not the last we're here of this, and so we will bring you updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. And now, the rest of this week's news. If you're a regular listener to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you'll know that since episode 102, we've been talking about the data breach at Blackboard. And so it's perhaps no surprise that this week news has reached us that Blackboard are now facing a class action lawsuit after their data breach. A petition for a class action lawsuit against Blackboard has been filed with the United States District Court, District of South Carolina in Charleston, after a system breach exposed donor data to hackers. The lawsuit stems from a data breach which happened on February the 7th, 2020, and was not discovered by the company until May the 14th. Users were not notified until July, as previously reported. Also, as previously reported, of course, in this instance, Blackboard are believed to have paid a Bitcoin ransom to secure the deletion of the data which had been taken from their system. According to papers filed with the United States District Court, District of South Carolina, by William Allen, sworn to be a Raleigh, North Carolina resident, the incident has resulted in consumers experiencing ascertainable losses in the form of out-of-pocket expenses and the value of their time reasonably incurred to remedy or mitigate the effects of the attack. Asked for a reaction to the lawsuit, a Blackboard spokesperson said Blackboard disagrees with the allegations and intends to demonstrate they are without merit. They went on to say that because of the legal action, they would not be making any further comments at this stage. Blackboard have said, however, that the vulnerability exploited by the ransom demanders had been fixed and there was no additional risk of information exposure between the start of its investigation and customer notification. Blackboard representatives have further asserted that bank account information, credit card information and social security numbers were not accessed. According to a request for class action certification, notifications sent out by Blackboard advise those potentially affected to monitor suspicious activity of their credit and accounts their social security numbers, credit card numbers, bank account numbers and additional personally identifiable information may also have been compromised. 
Such language is standard for a data security breach notification. Allen's complaint alleges that Blackboard did not provide timely notification of the breach, both due to Blackboard's alleged failures in discovering the breach and sealing it. The papers further assert Blackboard and its employees failed to properly monitor its network security and communications, failed to implement security communication policies, and failed to train employees regarding ransomware attacks. According to the complaint, plaintiff and class members' identities and private information are now at risk because defendants' negligent conduct as the private information that defendants selected and maintained was in the hands of data thieves. Defendant cannot reasonably maintain that the data freeze destroyed the subset copy simply because defendant paid the ransom and the data freeze confirmed the copy was destroyed. While Allen's claim asserts a higher likelihood of identity theft and other difficulties, it does not document any actual fiscal damage. The court papers petition for redress from the plaintiff and all class members as a result of several actions including negligence, wrongful intrusion into private affairs, invasions of privacy, breach of express contract, breach of implied contract, negligence per se, and violation of state data breach statutes. The last stems from allegations of flawed data security procedures and lack of timeliness in notification. In addition to certification as a class action, the plaintiff seeks to compel Blackboard to increase its data security practices in an unspecified way, to change practices that led to the breach, to pay for actual and punitive damages, and to pay attorneys' fees and costs. Allen also seeks a minimum of seven years of credit monitoring services for the entire class. We await the outcome of this class action and if we receive any updates from the court or from Blackboard, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Some victims of a data breach which leaked thousands of tenants' personal details say they have now become victims of fraud, been under threat of physical harm and some claim they've been forced to move house. The original data breach occurred when Watford Community Housing sent an email on March the 23rd to all tenants to inform them of changes to services during the coronavirus outbreak, but attached to the email was a spreadsheet that contained personal information of the Housing Association's 3,545 tenants. The information is understood to include full names, gender, address, mobile number, email address, ethnic origin, religion and sexual orientation. One tenant, who just wished to be referred to as Sasha, said that the leaked information put many vulnerable tenants in life-changing and life-threatening situations. Now, Amon Johal, a lawyer and director of Your Lawyers, which is representing nearly 200 clients affected, has claimed that many vulnerable people were put into psychological, physical and financial threat from the data being in the public domain. Mr Johal said, I think there's a lack of understanding about how serious and significant these breaches can be to individuals. Many of these individuals are vulnerable, some of the clients, for example, have been victims of domestic violence, and this data breach now puts them at further risk, essentially in terms of violence. Mr Joel exemplified one client who had their identity stolen after the breach, which included a bank account and credit card being taken out in her name, and her email address being compromised by fraudsters. The incident is currently being investigated by Action Fraud. But Watford Community Housing, for their part, say that the risk of identity or financial fraud is low. Other clients claim they've had to be rehomed with the assistance of UK authorities due to the leak causing a real risk. Mr Joel said, in terms of families having to move location and change jobs, that's going to have a significant impact on their mental health as well as their financial health. Some commenters said you need to potential loss for compensation. That's just incorrect. That's not right in the law. People affected by a data breach are entitled to claims for injuries to feelings, we tend to call it distress. 
And when talking about the lower levels impacted by the breach, you don't have to show the psychiatric injuries or financial loss. Watford Community Housing have a real obligation to take care of that personal data, particularly when they're vulnerable individuals that they hold data for. They've not learnt from highly publicised data breaches which have occurred. Mr Joel constantly made parallels to similar major data breaches which the firm helped its victims, including the personal details leaked to 400,000 British Airways customers in 2018 and the 5016 Street breach which leaked nearly 800 patients who attended HIV clinics. The Dean Street breach was claimed to be a result of human error, a term previously used by Tina Barnard, the Chief Executive of Watford Community Housing. Mr Joel said that they expected to recover around £30,000 from most of the claimants affected by the Watford Community Housing data breach, but some of the more significantly impacted victims could claim even more. Fletcher's data claims, another firm representing clients affected by the breach, said most victims could claim a minimum settlement between 1000 to 5000 while others seriously affected by the breach could receive up to 15000 Watford Community Housing, for their part, say they are continually reassessing their systems and procedures to guard against an error like this happening again. The Information Commissioner's Office has carried out a review of the incident. Watford Community Housing say the ICO issued some recommendations to prevent similar incidents happening, but does not consider any regulatory action should be taken at this stage. Tina Barnard, Chief Executive of Watford Community Housing, said, The security of customer information is extremely important to us. We have clear safeguards in place around the use and protection of customer data, and this incident was a result of human error. We've taken a variety of steps to assess the potential impact on those affected, including identifying any safeguarding concerns and we are providing comprehensive support. We have written to everyone affected to provide information and guidance. This support package includes access to free credit monitoring services to help give customers peace of mind. She continues, however, it is worth noting that the risk of identity or financial fraud is low as no personal passwords, national insurance numbers or financial information such as bank or payment history were affected by the incident. The ICO has carried out a review of the incident and has issued some recommendations but does not consider any regulatory action should be taken at this stage. We take our obligations towards data protection extremely seriously and we are working to implement the ICO's recommendations. Anyone impacted by the incident and feels they are vulnerable to antisocial behaviour, domestic abuse, harassment, hate crime or anything else is asked to email customer relations team at wchtorguk The Trust have also launched a website about the incident at https colon slash slash www.wcht.org.uk forward slash data hyphen incident. We will be keeping a closer eye on this case as it proceeds and we'll bring you any updates in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. Help! I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and I don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Wicked! Thanks, Mike! A major database breach has exposed profile data for nearly 235 million users of TikTok, Instagram and YouTube. The database contained personally identifiable information such as names, contact information, images and statistics about followers. According to a Comparatech report, the database belongs to Social Data, a company that sells data on social media influencers to marketers. Comparatech uncovered three identical copies of the exposed data on August 1st that were hosted at three separate IPv6 addresses 
In total, each one stored data on about 235 million social media profiles, including 96,714,241 records straight from Instagram, 42,129,799 records straight from TikTok, and 3,955,892 records straight from YouTube. Each record contains some or all of the following info. Profile name, full real name, profile photo, account description, whether the profile belongs to a business or has advertisements, statistics about follower engagement, including number of followers, engagement rate, follower gross rate, audience gender, audience age, audience location, and number of likes, the last post timestamp, the age of the user, the gender of the user. Evidence suggests that much of the data originally came from a now defunct company, Deep Social. The names of the Instagram datasets, Accounts Deep Social 90 and Accounts Deep Social 91, hint at the data's origin. Based on this, Diashenko first contacted Deep Social using the email address listed on its website to disclose the exposure. The administrators of Deep Social forwarded the disclosure to Social Data. The CTO of Social Data acknowledged the exposure and the servers hosting the data were taken down about three hours later. According to the report, Facebook and Instagram banned Deep Social from their marketing APIs in 2018 and threatened legal action against it if it continued to scrape data from their users' profiles. Then, Deep Social announced it would be reducing its operations and has shut down since then. Social Data denies any connection between itself and Deep Social. A spokesperson from Social Data told Diashenko in an email, Please note that the negative connotation that the data has been hacked implies that the data was obtained surreptitiously. This is simply not true. All the data is available freely to anyone with internet access. I would appreciate it if you could ensure that this is made clear. Anyone could fish or contact any person that indicates telephone and email on his social network profile in the same way even without the existence of the database. Social networks themselves expose data to outsiders. That is their business. Facebook company spokesperson Stephanie Otway told Comparitech in an email Scraping people's information from Instagram is a clear violation of our policies. We revoked Deep Social's access to our platform in June 2018 and sent a legal notice prohibiting any further data collection. As the data has now been taken offline, we're not sure whether any further action will be taken in this case, but if we become aware of any further action, we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. With attention focused on COVID-19, it's perhaps become all too easy to take our eye off the fact that we are now only four months away from the end of the transition period for Brexit. And particularly with the news this week that Michel Barnier says that he now believes the post-Brexit deal is going to be unlikely and it does seem that negotiations have reached something of a standstill, then we need to start paying attention to what that means for data after the 31st of December 2020. The UK government has begun hinting that it may aim to relax some of the rules around data and finance in the event of a no-deal Brexit. But it has to be said there's no suggestion that Europe and other nations complying with GDPR will do the same. In fact, recent rulings across Europe suggest that local data protection authorities are gearing up to act on potential breaches rather than gearing down. And it's worth remembering that this will be a one-way problem. A multinational will be able to send UK employee and consumer data into the European Union, but sending data into the UK from Europe will be more difficult. Europe's concern for our privacy rights, as expressed in GDPR, is very real. However, it's also 
politically expedient for a bloc that aspires to keep the value of digital business inside Europe. Since 2013, there's been a move towards the European digital trade barrier or a form of protectionism. And if the SREMS 2 case, which we spoke about back in July, is combined with a no-adequacy agreement post-Brexit, useful steps are made towards this outcome. And it's worth remembering that there's a great deal of economic value and foreign direct investment to be gained from converting empty office buildings into data centres, especially with COVID ID now seeing many more staff working from home. And particularly in the UK, we're seeing city centres very much deserted as people are continuing to work from home rather than returning to their desks in their offices. Now imagine if all the data transfers of Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon and other big players stayed in Europe, including the backups. So they didn't have a presence in the UK. As far as their servers were concerned, they had all their servers in Europe. That would be a big boost to the European tech sector and a big drain to the UK tech sector. And in terms of cloud hosting, it could even in theory see American firms like Salesforce deciding that it's simply not worth keeping the operators in the EU and selling out to local operators such as SAP in the mirror of the proposal for ByteDance to sell the US arm of TikTok to Microsoft. Conversely, restricted data flows present an enormous challenge to the UK. The digital economy accounts for 7.7% of UK's GDP. It's worth £400 million a day to our economy. Processing data from outside the UK accounts for perhaps one third of that figure. If we lose just one half of the value of data processing, that amounts to around one half percent of UK GDP. We could face losing that overnight on 31st of December. And of course we have to bear that in mind with the impact on GDP we've already seen from COVID-19. And of course coming with that is not just a reduction in GDP but also potential for an increase in job losses. And of course we're already seeing again job losses because of COVID-19. And so the situation we now find ourselves in is that UK businesses are facing two years worth of work where they've got to cram into three months before the transition period ends on the 31st of December. One sector that's definitely going to be affected is the finance sector, even if by some miracle a form of passporting can be preserved for their core activities. Many in the finance sector have been told wrongly that Article 49 derogations under GDPR will protect them from arduous reconfigurations of data transfer processes. However, those derogations under Article 49 don't apply if the data transfers are routine, say every week or every day, even every hour in some case, and done in bulk. So it's worth remembering that unless some other mechanism is agreed, if there's a no-deal Brexit, then in most cases we're going to be looking at the standard contractual clauses. Again, looking back at the SREMS 2 case and how difficult it is to get those standard contractual clauses in place across the Atlantic perhaps gives us a foretaste of what it's going to be like getting those contractual clauses in place for dealing with the UK as far as companies in the EU are concerned. And of course, EU businesses transferring data to the UK from Europe will also have to update their privacy notices and provide appropriate avenues of redress for their data subjects. By the same token, UK businesses will have to appoint representatives in the EU to act as their point of contact for EU citizens whose data they process, because we won't be in the EU anymore. What's the likely outcome of this? Well, it's possible, of course, that in the end, many businesses are simply going to decide it's not feasible economic to conduct transfers of U- European data into UK-based data hubs. They will set the cost and burden of moving those functions into Europe. This is very much a wake-up call. We are only weeks away from the UK exiting the EU for good, or at least for the foreseeable future. And it is crucial that we get something in place. If we are going to have to rely on standard contractual clauses, then one would hope 
that the UK government will be advising us in plenty of time to do that. What we don't want to find is almost a COVID situation again, where we get to Christmas Eve and suddenly the government says, oh, by the way, if you want to carry on sending data to Europe, you have to put standard contractual clauses in place and you've got a week to do it. It's just not going to work. So this is something we're working on very closely here at the GDPR Weekly Show. And we obviously will bring you updates in the GDPR Weekly Show itself. But if you would like further information of how it may relate to your organisation or your company, please do just drop us an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will get directly in touch with you. What's up, Mike? I'm fed up. I wish I had a new job. Have you tried Jubal? Jubal.org. We help people find jobs. Great. I'll try it now. We know that many of our listeners use WordPress to either add a blog to their website or even to actually create the content for all of their website. And so we thought we'd spend a few moments just looking at five WordPress plugins which are useful from a GDPR perspective. The first is a plugin called CookieBot. CookieBot is a cloud-based GDPR solution that helps you control cookies and trackers on your website. CookieBot offers a customizable consent banner that users can use to opt in or out of the cookies your website uses. You can also automatically generate a cookie policy for your website that you can publish as part of your terms or indeed you can add as part of your privacy policy. The second plugin is a plugin called Delete Me. Delete Me is a plugin that allows you to let specific WordPress user roles delete their own profile and or their other information. You can let your website users delete their data that they don't want to be stored by your site. This plugin is particularly used for people creating an account on your website. You can give them the power to delete their WordPress profiles from your site whenever they want. The third plugin is a plugin called Shared Count. And Shared Count is primarily a social media sharing plugin, but it is GDPR compliant. It doesn't use any cookies or tracking scripts, and it doesn't store any user data. What this means is that your site visitors will be able to share your content on other social media with their social media followers without fear of being tracked. The fourth plugin is another cookie-related plugin. It's a plugin called Cookie Notice, and Cookie Notice is a user-friendly GDPR plugin that lets you create a customizable message and layout for visitors. You can change the banner's position and layout, let users accept or decline consent directly on the banner, and display the message in multiple languages. This plugin also lets you point site visitors to a page with more information. So, for instance, you might point it at your privacy policy. And the final plugin we're looking at this week is a plugin called WP Activity Log. It's a WordPress security activity plugin. From a GDPR perspective, it allows you to see what is collecting data on your site, such as plugin forms, comments, and more. You can then investigate how the data has been used and what GDPR privacy option you need to install on your site. So just five plugins there covered very briefly, but we hope that you find them useful if you are a WordPress user. If you need any help with implementing those plugins on your website, of course, please don't hesitate to drop an email to helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com and one of our specialists will do their best to help you. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. An interesting reminder that GDPR applies as much to your employee data as it does to your customers' data arose this week when the Labour Court of Dusseldorf granted a former employee €5,000 in damages for violation of the obligation to give information. 
GDPR has, amongst other things, created comprehensive information rights for employees concerning the personal data stored about them by their employer. The employer has to provide the required information within 30 days of the hire date or the request date. The Labour Court of Dusseldorf ruled regarding the right to information under Section 15 of GDPR. The underlying case was about claims of an employee who'd left the company. He demanded information about the data related to him. Since the former employer only fulfilled its obligation to give information hesitantly and also incompletely, the former employee asserted claims for damages. He demanded damages in the amount of an annual salary of over €140,000. The Labour Court of Dusseldorf awarded the plaintiff a claim for damages, but the amount of €5,000 was significantly lower than the employer claimed. In addition, the court found that the former employer has to disclose information on the purposes for which the personal data of the plaintiff were processed and the categories of personal data to be processed. The court further stated that the information must be precise, transparent, comprehensible, easy available and in clear, simple language. Simple generalities and phrases were not sufficient. The information must instead be complete, concrete and detailed. If data had been transferred to other companies or authorities, further processing of data by third parties is no longer subject to the employer's obligation to give further information. As a result of the breach of the obligation to give information, the employee suffered non-material damage. Because of the fact he was informed late and insufficiently, he was not able to examine the handling of his personal data. Therefore, he was entitled to damages under Article 82 of GDPR. The court referred to the fact that the definition of non-material damage was to be interpreted broadly. The damage is to be fully and effectively compensated to the data subject. Moreover, the amount of damages has to be dissuasive so that infringements can be effectively sanctioned. The amount of damages should take into account, amongst other things, the financial strength of the company. In the above-mentioned case, it was also taken into account in favour of the company that the infringements were only committed negligently. In the end, the Labour Court of Dusseldorf came to claim for damages in the amount of €5,000. This resulted from €500 for each of the first two months of delayed information and €1,000 for each of the three further months of delay, as well as €1,000 for two content defects. Thus, the court remained clearly below the employee's claim. What this ruling does show is that employers need to take the implementation of GDPR seriously. Violations can be expensive, even if in this case the plaintiff was clearly unsuccessful with his demand. Nonetheless, I would suggest that most companies, particularly in the current climate, would not want to find that they suddenly have to pay out another £5,000 to an ex-employee simply because they haven't provided data to that employee within 30 days. So whilst hopefully you have good GDPR practice throughout your company, do make sure that your payroll and HR selections are fully briefed in GDPR and that they know that they must respond to data subject requests fully and within 30 days of the request being made. I love this show, but I've got GDPR questions and don't know what to do. It's simple. Just follow the instructions coming up and the guys at GDPR Weekly Show will help within 24 hours. All you need to do is email helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com with the details of your GDPR issue and one of our specialists will get straight back to you. Bye, kids. Thanks, Mike. One area that's maybe overlooked sometimes is GDPR compliance in the mobile app space. And so it was interesting to read this week that a group of academics from three German universities have decided to investigate whether and how mobile app vendors respond to subject access requests and the results of their four-year undercover field study are, I think it's best to say, disappointing. The group say that in three iterations between 2015 and 2019, we sent subject access requests to vendors of 225 mobile applications popular in Germany. 
Throughout the iterations, 19 to 26% of the vendors were unreachable or did not reply at all. Subject access requests were fulfilled in 15 to 53% of the cases, with an unexpected decline between the GDPR enforcement date and the end of the study. The remaining responses exhibit a long list of shortcomings, including severe violations of information security and data protection principles. Some responses even contain deceptive and misleading statements. Further, 9% of the apps were discontinued and 27% of the user accounts vanished during the study, mostly without proper notification about the consequences to personal data. The researchers, Jacob Leon Kroger from TU Berlin, Jen Lindemann from the University of Hamburg and Professor Dr. Dominic Herman from the University of Bamberg made sure to test a representative sample of iOS and Android apps, popular and less popular, from a variety of app categories and from vendors based in Germany, the EU and outside of the EU. In each case, they disguised themselves as an ordinary German user, created accounts needed for the apps to work, interacted with each app for about 10 minutes and then asked the app providers for information about their stored personal data before and after the enforcement of GDPR. They also used a different request text for each round of inquiries. The first one was more informal, where the last two were more elaborate and included references to relevant data protection law and a warning that responsible data protection authorities would be notified if there was no response. While we cannot precisely determine their individual influence, it can be assumed that both the introduction of GDPR as well as more formal and threatening tone of our inquiry in the latter two inquiries, had an impact on the vendor's behaviour, they know. Smartphones are ubiquitous, and most users use a variety of mobile apps, which usually collect personal user data and share it with third parties. In theory, GDPR should force mobile app vendors to provide information about this data and how it's used to its users. In practice, though, many app vendors are obviously hoping that users won't care enough about it, won't make us think about it when they don't get a satisfactory reply, and that GDPR regulators won't have the resources to enforce the regulation. The researchers noted that they suspected that some vendors merely pretended to be poorly reachable when they received subject access requests, while others actually had insufficient resources to process incoming email. To confirm this hypothesis, they tested how the vendors that failed to respond to requests reacted to non-privacy-related inquiries. Using another, different, fake identity, they emailed the vendors who had not replied to the first inquiry and to the third inquiry, expressing interest in promoting their apps on a personal blog or on a YouTube channel. Out of the group of initial non-responders, 31% first inquiry and 22% of those of the third inquiry replied to those requests, even though they'd not replied to the subject access requests, proving that their email inbox was in fact being monitored. The researchers believe the situation for the users can be improved by authorities doing such random compliance checks and offering better support for data controllers through industry-specific guidelines and best practice. In particular, there should be mandatory standard interfaces for providing data exports and other privacy-related information to data subjects, obviating the need for manual processing of GDPR requests, they concluded. We finished this week in South Africa, where Internet of Things technology provider IoT.NXT has received triple ISO certification and finished compliance with GDPR this month. International expansion is the key strategic focus of IoT.NXT. ISO certification and GDPR compliance are important elements when we engage with international customers as it indicates our standards of technical skill and operational capability, says Francois Volchenk, Chief Digital Innovator of IoT.NXT. The company is now ISO 9001, ISO 14001 and ISO 45001 certified to improve operational excellence for its edge technology and tech agnostic platform, 
which assists with solving the integration limitation challenges of legacy systems. To comply with the requirements of GDPR, IoT.NXT performed an audit on the IoT.NXT platform to identify where personal data is used and stored. Internal policies were updated to ensure the way personal data is processed within the organisation adheres to very high standards. Privacy by design is one of the fundamental concepts applied to the IoT.NXT platform and range of products. The use of personal data is meticulously scrutinised during the development and testing phases to ensure that personal data enjoys sufficient protection, Volsant said. The IoT.NXT servers in Germany and the Netherlands house personal data where technical controls are in place to protect that data, which will only be transferred across borders with consent to fulfil service obligations. Volsant went on to say that the ISO certifications are a visible sign of IoT.NXT's credibility and commitment to quality that builds further opportunities for global expansion through the international recognition of ISO. IoT.NXT has offices in South Africa, the Netherlands and the USA. South African's telecoms company Vodacom, a subsidiary of Vodafone, acquired a majority stake in IoT.NXT in 2019, which is driving the company's global rollout of Internet of Things solutions. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. And cut. That's a wrap. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity. Until next time, bye-bye.